Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time to Ben Jarofsky show as I speak. It's Friday, February 4th, 2022. I have the New York Times in front of me. I mean, truly, there's just so much stuff happening today. I don't even know where to start. ISIS leader dead after U.S. forces raid Syria house. Uh, I guess most Americans have forgot that ISIS existed, that Syria had existed, that the Middle East had existed, uh, and a reminder that, yes, they're still there. And how about this one? Um, full uh, Clyburn makes full-scale push for a court pick. Representative James E. Clyburn of South Carolina was already picturing Judge J. Michelle Child sitting on the Supreme Court. A lot of Tactics going behind the scene, a lot of phone calls going behind the scene. So without further ado, I'm going to bring my distinguished guest, ask him to introduce himself, because the first topic we're going to talk about is neither one of these things. So there's a lot we want to address today. Distinguished guest, take it away. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be back. Um, I'm David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University, the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. And uh, I'm excited to talk about a rare piece of relatively not terrible news. So, you know, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the, the, it seems as though the Democrats have taken your advice how to fight dirty. Uh, when David Ferris and I first met, he was uh, going around talking about his book. I came on my radio show and I was like, I read the book. And I went, oh my God, this man speaks to me. Because the book is basically, folks, like tips, tactics, strategies that the Democrats should follow, emulating the dirty tricks of the Republicans. To take advantage of the fact, uh, this is uh, a David Ferris thesis, that most people in this country agree with Democrats on most issues. And yet, the Republicans hold most of the power because they're unafraid to play dirty. And so, uh, this is essentially David Ferris's theme ever since, pretty much, David, and every appearance on our show when we get into the tactics and strategy, as opposed to like larger discussions on economy and the uh, foreign policy, et cetera, and so forth. So, uh, the good news, in quotes, from a, I would say, democratic perspective or a saving civilization perspective, how's that, saving democracy perspective, is that the Democrats have decided, apparently, you know what, 
no more than Mr. Nice Guy when it comes to gerrymandering, and they're playing as rough and tough uh, as the Republicans. Take it away and explain uh, your thesis. Sure. So, um, you know, as you know, every 10 years, uh, we do a census, we count ourselves, and then we reapportion the 435 districts for the House of Representatives. But that's And that happens in every state, whether you lose or gain seats or whether nothing happens to you. Um, and um, the U.S. is really the only country in the world that allows um, partisan legislatures and partisan governors to draw those lines to, you know, to benefit themselves maximally and to disadvantage their adversaries. Um, the, you know, the Republicans swept the midterm elections in 2010 and then imposed a series of extremely aggressive gerrymanders um, across the country where they held power, especially in, in closely divided states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina, um, where they, they just netted um, so many seats that it made it almost impossible for Democrats to win the House for, for eight years. Um, even in 2012, when they got more votes, they didn't take the House. Um, and that's to say nothing of the, of the state legislatures, which are even worse. So here we are in 2020, uh, and, and uh, we, did, we, did work, we did poorly again in state legislative elections, and Republicans emerged from the 2020 elections um, with more power to draw these district lines uncontested. And uh, there were a lot of us hitting the panic button about that, saying, even if we got similar election results to 2020 and 2022, we could still lose the House because Republicans were going to, you know, gain a, a, anywhere from, you know, six to 12 seats just from the gerrymandering process alone. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to report that it does not look like that's actually what's going to happen. Um, and there have been two related developments in that, okay? Um, and I just, but let me step back in time for one second, <laughs> okay? Uh, gerrymandering is terrible, right? It's obviously, it's obviously anti-democratic. Um, it is not explicitly per, per, uh, you know, forbidden in the Constitution, of course. And um, there was a Supreme Court case in 2019 that challenged the, the whole practice of partisan gerrymandering. It could have eliminated it. Um, but the court voted five to four, big shock. Um, this was before RBG died. Uh, the court voted five to four to say, you know, gerrymandering is not unconstitutional. If you want to change it, pass a law through Congress. Um, it's not the it's not the Supreme Court's job to um, to tell anybody how to draw their district lines. Is <laughs> the, the great quote that's like, "Are we to believe that you know uh, the, the framers intended us to ban this practice but didn't do it?" Well, well we can't challenge the the whims of a two hundred and fifty year old dead people, can we? So gerrymandering continues, and of course the the court, the five four Republican majority on that court. Um, was doing this to reinforce Republican political power, which is their only point of existence right now. So um, they thought that they were being very clever. But uh, unfortunately for them, um, there seems to have been some sort of failure in, in coordination between the national party and the state parties. Because in a number of states, um, especially Texas, where they could have done the most damage, um, the Republican state leaders decided to, to reinforce their own incumbents that is to draw district lines to make sure that the people who are already in Congress would win their seats easily, rather um, than systematically putting Democrats at a disadvantage and grabbing a bunch of seats out of Texas alone. Um, and that has been the case in a, in a number of states. Uh, I, I encourage you to go over to, to 538.com um, where they have a, a, a kind of a running tally of which party has, you know, this is all theory, right? It's, no elections have been held on these lines yet. But what it looks like, the which party has gained and which party has lost. Um, and so far, 
because of decisions made by Republican leaders in places like um, in places like Texas, uh, it does not really look like they're going to gain many seats. Um, and in fact, the state of play right now, according to five thirty eight, um, is that uh, is that Democrats have gained ten Democratic leaning seats, um, and Republicans have lost two Republican leaning seats. That's a that's a twelve seat swing towards us so far. Um, and now I'll note. The Florida maps are not finalized yet, okay? Um, and if Florida goes through with a with an aggressive gerrymander um, for Republicans, and that's that's gonna ha- that's gonna hang on some court cases, um, they could claw most of those ten seats back, right? But the worst case scenario is not coming at us, okay? The worst case scenario of Republicans gaining a dozen seats from redistricting alone is gone, and you know who we have to thank for that? Rare as is a rare, I'm gonna give a rare shout out to our our local, our local political leaders here, here in Illinois, Ben, because Illinois and, and New York came through. Um, we, we resisted the calls from good governance people to play nice. And we said, um, we're not going to play nice because we offered the Republicans a truce. You know, there's a, there's a bill before Congress, before the People Act, that would ban partisan gerrymandering nationwide. And now they're all crying foul about New York's maps, which would, I love the New York maps, by the way. That's to have 26 seats, and the, <laughs> these maps would spend 22 Democrats and four Republicans to Congress. I just, I love it. That is spike uh, the football, right? Um, so, <laughs> yo, you don't like it. That's yeah. fine. Pass the For the People Act. We'd be happy. I'm sure that Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi would be happy to run a standalone, nonpartisan redistricting bill through Congress if, Republic, if a single Republican would vote for it. Um, and if they're not going to do that, if they're going to stack the court with people um, who, who act in ways that they think are serving Republican power, and they, they just oopsied it this time. Well, that's that's that looks that seems like a them problem and not an us problem. Um, and so we we did it here too. Looks like our map is going to be, you know, fourteen three um, Democratic Republican. Uh, I, I've, I've, I'm not a map maker, Ben, but I read a lot of map makers, and they think that our our gerrymander was a little sloppier than New York, so it may not hold up over time. Um, but uh, at least for now, we're netting three seats out of Illinois. Um, and, and God knows many, so, you know, six or seven seats out of New York. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's good news for Democrats. Um, and it puts us in a position where if we can turn the political situation around in this country in the next, um, you know, the next 10 months, we have a fighting chance at holding the house instead of, you know, instead of the feared situation, which is like, even if this political situation is quite good, <laughs> we probably still lose the house. Um, so that's a big, that's a big turnaround and Democratic fortunes. Now, I, I, I have great faith in the Democratic Party to lose anyway, um, but uh, at least <laughs> at least we're on the footing to try, you know. Well, you've given me a lot to uh, come back with, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm uh, what the hell? I'm going to take credit for the Illinois thing. I've been uh, pushing this theme forever about uh, we got to fight the Republicans like the Republicans fight. Don't listen to those good government people. Uh, <laughs> they want you to be saps and suckers is generally what I say. Uh, and uh, I, so a shout out to the Democratic map makers, Chris Welch, Speaker of the House, uh, J.B. Pritzker, Governor. Uh, it's by no means certain, by the way. We talk about this on the show all the time, uh, David, when we do the deep dive in the local I bring on activists from these various districts. It's by no means certain that these Democratic, uh, what that uh, what five thirty eight calls Democratic districts, will actually go Democratic. We have to see how it unfolds. We have to see who wins these uh, contested primaries, et cetera, and so forth. But at least Democrats in Illinois are playing the game uh, more or less the way the Republican and the cries 
the cries, the sobbing coming from Republican legislators in Springfield is really one of the most enjoyable sounds I've heard all year. This the sobbing as they, oh, he's so mean. He went back in his promise. We're talking about J.B. Pritzker. Because J.B. Pritzker promised. Nobody paid attention to this one, by the way. And when he made the promise, David, I was hoping he wasn't going to keep it, that he was going to turn over map making to a bipartisan commission. I was going, no, J.B., come on. You don't really mean that, do you? Don't do that. And I'm like, yeah. It, it turns out he had no intention of doing that at all. I'm like, all right. Right, JB. And now they're shopping. He broke his promise. <laughs> oh, poor baby. Yeah, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, wow. So let's go to something you said about Texas, though. And, uh, you know, and I want to follow up on this protecting incumbents as opposed to uh, protecting the party's position. And my sense of what you're saying, and I'd like you to elaborate a little more is that you're essentially making uh, super red districts, MAGA districts, uh, as opposed to making them uh, more moderate districts by dividing Democrats uh, into a greater number of districts so you just dilute their power. But by putting them in, by putting a Democrat uh, in a uh, super MAGA district, you run the risk of electing a Democrat or a moderate Republican with such a thing exists anymore uh so <laughs> i uh when liz cheney is the moderate wow anyway um so explain take a little deeper dive uh and what's going on in texas sure so um you know texas gained um, a seat in the in the reapportionment right so um an another factor here that made us nervous was that a that republican states gained more seats in the in the census reapportionment than democrats and so and the states that gained the most, like Florida and, and Texas, are are Republican trifectas. That is, Republicans control the legislature and they control um, the governorship. And there's fairly weak checks on on their power to draw the the district lines. And so I think the assumption was that the National Republican Party would coordinate um, these these maps in the, in the same way that they did after 2010, and that the the governing principle would be not that whether we care about the fate of any individual legislator in the Republican Party, except maybe, you know, Kevin, you know, the leadership or something, but more um, that we want to maximize the number of seats that we get out of these uh, these redistricting processes. And I, I guess, I mean, I don't know exactly what happened here, but my guess is that that logic runs headlong into the interests of the people that are already in power. And people who are already in power, this is just political science 101, um, the overwhelming priority of, of almost every member of Congress is to get reelected, um, regardless of the fate of the party. Uh, maybe somebody should tell that to Kirsten Cinema, but uh, but that's how that's how most of them act, right? And um, so, in, in in essence, there is actually some tension here between maximizing partisan gain and uh, and, and and keeping your incumbents in safe districts. The ideal gerrymander is not actually to have like a bunch of mega blowout districts, you know, 85 to 15. It's to have as many districts, uh, you know, going like 55, 45 for, for your team as possible. And then you want to pack your opponents into, into, in a, into as small a number of landslide districts as you possibly can. That's all made easier because Democrats are concentrated in cities and suburbs. Um, and so, you know, just to, to pull up the results from 2020 and look at any district that involves Chicago, um, 
and especially the ones that are mostly Chicago. And you'll see, you know, 80, 20, 75, 25, these, these, these races, some of them are not even contested. Um, the ones that are, the Republican candidates are just, um, you know, these like red shirts on Star Trek that they're just thrown to the wolves, you know, it's like, this one's not going to make it, you know, um, they never had a chance. And uh, it's hard to recruit people to run in a race where they absolutely know with 100% certainty that they're going to lose. Um, so anyway, the, again, the point is not to have um, overwhelming uh, districts in your favor. The point is to draw as many districts that are fortified against anything but the biggest wave in the in the opposite direction. And and ten points is about that number, where it's like you really uh, we don't see a lot of um, uh, congressional races nationally where where either side wins by ten points or more. It's been a long time. So um, if you draw a fifty five forty five district, you can be pretty confident at least in the first few cycles after redistricting, that you're going to win that race. Now, um, there's another um, concept in the study of gerrymandering called a dummymander. Um, and that's where <laughs> that's where you, you think you've gerrymandered it properly, and you actually have not. Um, and you've given the other side more opportunities to win than you thought. Or you're not forward-looking about demographic change or, or the political trends. And, you know, four or six years later what you thought was a gerrymander actually made a very competitive map or maybe even helped your opponents. So some of this stuff is difficult to predict out 10 years in advance, but I think um, at least for 2022, a number of state Republican parties decided not to maximize partisan gain, um, but to protect the interests of, of certain incumbents. And that is not what we did in Illinois, <laughs> New York. And, uh, and that's, that's good. That's how we, that's how we end up at probably, I think when this process is over, I think the Democrats will actually either have benefited from it or, or we will have preserved the status quo. Um, none of this is an argument to not pass the For the People Act, right? I mean, I, I am a good government type, but but I don't believe in in being the sucker, right? Like, if, if we want good governance, it has to be all around the country. Um, and it has to be very carefully designed because um, we, we've seen in a number of states that do have independent redistricting commissions that they get deadlocked in the in the the entity that has to break that partisan deadlock is a partisan <laughs> and the deadlock gets broken in favor of whoever wants, runs the state anyway. Um, that's what happened in New York. New York has an independent commission. They couldn't agree on it. And so it went to the legislature and the legislature's like, you know, um, thank you for your service, but uh, <laughs> we're going to draw this extremely lopsided map and you're going to, you know, and it could, I guess it could still get struck down in court, but I think um, that's unlikely. And uh, it's, it's further evidence in my mind that we need even more fundamental reform than than nonpartisan redistricting. We need larger districts that are that can't be gerrymandered. Um, that is, that elect three or five people instead of one, and use some form of proportional representation. The stuff I talked about in the book a few years ago <clears throat> that wasn't the proposal that got the most attention, obviously. But um, <laughs> there there is a bill before Congress that would do exactly that, and we would never have to fight about this stuff again. We wouldn't have to worry about you know the, the exact composition of these nonpartisan commissions. We would just put this whole mess behind us. But uh, Republicans didn't want to do that, so that's too bad for them, you know? Yeah. Well, they saw a tactical advantage. They went with it, and now they're going to have to adjust on the ground, and you watch their rhetoric. will uh, It pivots from state to state, so they'll be arguing one thing in Illinois where they sob like little babies because Prisker did to them what Republicans have been doing to Democrats throughout the country. So they're utterly a hypocritical party. Uh, David, I, I see nothing worthy about the Republican Party right now. I've always struggled with finding anything worthy about the Republican Party because I am pretty much a diehard lefty. But I, I, they're just so void of principle. 
and so blatantly uh, disingenuous about absolutely everything that it's, I don't know, I like Joe Biden, my, the other day said, my good friend Mitch McConnell, and I'm like, no Republican, no, says my good, uh, anyway, I want to give you, you know, just to your point, what the Democrats did in Illinois, and just, I don't want to do the deep dive here, because we've done it so many times on other shows, but they put two incumbents in the same district. They put Sean Cassidy and Marie Newman in the same district, and they did just create a, a new uh, a, uh, Latino plurality seat, which will have, uh, I don't know who will be the representative, Deli Ramirez or um, uh, the Alderman Villegas from Chicago. But the point is, is they were willing to sacrifice a Democratic incumbent to pick up a seat. And Marie Newman, who's probably going to lose, is really upset about that. Uh, but you could argue that in the long term, it's better off Again, for civilization, if you believe that Kevin McCarthy as the Speaker of the House uh, is the first step toward the end of civilization. So I uh, give the Democrats credit. I had uh, on the show earlier this week a um, an activist uh, lefty from uh, Houston. Ben Chow is his name. He's running for the local board of commissioners there. Very involved in democratic politics. And his uh, view was that because of the gerrymandering uh, in Texas – the the Democrats are really struggling on a local level uh, to gain uh, seats, but they're confident that they can win on the statewide level. Uh, Beto O'Rourke running for governor against Gregory Abbott, and this gets into divisions in MAGA that I'd like you to address. We haven't talked about this. We talk a lot about the divisions in the Democratic Party as signified and symbolized by a mansion and uh, cinema and the reluctance to, to do anything vaguely Democratic. Um, but I noticed this last week uh, on display in Texas where Gregory Abbott was, Governor Abbott was booed uh, at a Trump rally in Texas because I guess he's not MAGA enough, which is so bizarre since they have the most restrictive abortion law in the country right now. So talk about the uh, ideological divides in MAGA and the Republican Party and how that may play out uh, in the upcoming elections. Sure. I mean, I think the, the place to keep your eye on this the most is in, is in primary election campaigns over the next six months or so, um, where you have, uh, you have people who are endorsed by Trump um, running against you know, what counts for mainstream Republicanism these days. Uh, and generally, the people who are endorsed by Trump are, are insane people uh, or deeply unqualified for the office that they're running for, you know, like Herschel Walker in Georgia, who doesn't who didn't even live there until like five days ago, um, running for the Senate seat. <laughs> and um, uh, so I, I'm not sure that there's a big ideological divide with, within the MAGA movement uh, as so much as there is, I think, an emerging struggle over who is the leader of the MAGA movement? Like, is it still Trump? Is he running for president? He seems like he's running for president. Um, but there have been there has been more pushback on some of his endorsements recently um, than I had seen in, in some time. You had um, some of the crazier members of the House getting getting publicly angry with Trump about a couple of endorsements that he made in, in some of these primary campaigns, like uh, Madison Cawthorn, who's one of the worst people in America, was 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 you know was tweeting an, an attack on, on Donald Trump. I, I love this in a sort of, you know, cage match sort of way when, when the, the worst people in the country are, are at each other's throats. It's really kind of entertaining. Um, but I think um, I think Trump has successfully remade the party's uh, 
um, policy outlook, right? Like, I don't think that there's going to be much pushback against the new Republican positioning on immigration. I don't think there's going to be much pushback on the new Republican positioning on on China. Um, and I, I doubt there's going to be much dissent about cultural issues like like abortion. Um, and so in that sense, it's really, it's like a personality struggle um, because I think that there are people in the Republican Party who realize that Trump is probably the weakest of, of any of the major contenders for the presidency in 2024. Um, and that's just, a, that's just a basic statement of fact. Like he just lost the election to Joe Biden. Um, Biden may look weak right now, but the pattern in presidential politics we've seen for a long time is that he will regain some of his popularity from his own partisans uh, in the run-up to the 2024 election. And that, you know, that, that election will be likely fought, fought on similar political ground as the one in 2020. Um, and so I think there's a lot of people in the Republican Party that would actually like Trump to like just get gone um, and, you know, and turn the keys over to, to Ron DeSantis or, or Christy Neem or, you know, whoever, which one, whichever one of these red meat MAGA governors is, is uh, best positioned to win the nomination. And, um, you know, there's also the thing where you, uh, you think, well, Ron DeSantis would be great. And then you get him out in front of the floodlights on those, on those primary debates and, and they just they just crack or they you know they, they don't look as good as you thought they would in, in nationally because um, it is it really is one thing to you know sell your anti-Fauci merchandise in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, it's it's quite another thing to hold your ground against you know ten other Republicans on a on a national stage when they're out for blood um, f- from your own team. So who knows who would be the strongest candidate? But I, I feel f- quite confident that Trump Trump is not it. You know, Trump is not the, not the strongest candidate Republicans could, could run. I think that the um, establishment has has surrendered on some ideological things, but would much prefer somebody like, uh, you know, your Glenn Youngkin or someone that seems normal, Ben. I mean, I think that's the... <laughs> somebody that's not going to get up in a debate with, with Joe Biden and yell at him for two hours and interrupt him over and over again and, and um, create such an ugly spectacle that people turn the TV off. Um, I think there's some yearning uh, at least among party elites, not the insurgents, but party elites for um, a candidate who can who can look and walk and talk like a like a relatively normal po- po- politician. Um, maybe not the old you know empty platitudes, but but not somebody who's such a loose cannon um, that all we're going to be talking about is the scandals that this person creates every time that they get in front of a camera. I, I think that they're tired of that, and I think that they I think they think rightly that it hurt the Republican party. Um, and so that, that's the, in, in my mind, that's the big division that I'm, that I'm looking at for is, is sort of pro Trump forces versus, um, folks who basically agree with the, uh, with the policy agenda, but who just want a different face of the party, um, a, a return to a different, slightly different kind of politics at least. Well, we're seeing this unfold, uh, on some level here in Illinois, uh, in the gubernatorial primary, uh, as Republicans uh, try to select somebody to run against Pritzker. And, I, and I'm, we've been a sub- obsessively following this on the show. Uh, and again, in other segments, David, we do mostly national stuff with you. Uh, but right now, uh, there had been about four Republicans running, all sort of running for MAGA. And uh, the leading contender would have been a state senator named Darren Bailey, who was just out and out MAGA. No, uh, no qualms about it. Uh, he's the leading anti-masker. Uh, in the state, been challenging Pritzker on that front for a while. And then out of nowhere comes the um, uh, 
uh, mayor of uh, Aurora, uh, Richard Irvin, who apparently is backed by Ken Griffin, the richest man in the state of Illinois, who is an ideologue uh, on fiscal grounds. That he doesn't want to pay taxes. Uh, excuse me. So he's, he's let it be known he'll spend untold millions on Irvin, and suddenly Irvin is the front runner. And I'm watching this. You talk everything you just said is coming true here in Illinois. Irvin is the front runner. They they put these ads out uh, that shows him like stopping rioters is essentially the theme of the ad. <laughs> you know, people are looting and burning buildings, and Irvin, I got tough. I brought in the National Guard. So, but they kept him away from reporters. Yesterday, he was paraded be bunch of, uh, before a bunch of different reporters, one on one settings. He was awful, David, and particularly on the issue of abortion. This guy didn't know what to. The, Michael Flannery, the local channel uh, thirty-two Fox TV guy, asked him about his position on abortion, and he literally looked at the camera, pause. He didn't know what to say. You know what I'm saying? Because you, listen, I could fill your head with the, the issue of how abortion plays in Illinois, uh, and how this is a, one of the bluest states in America on, on the issue of abortion. Uh, and I don't know if a Republican can run and win statewide being anti-choice. And I'm not even sure Irvin's anti-choice in his heart of hearts. You know what I'm saying? So he's sort of like, hubba, hubba, hubba. <laughs> and then an aide. I'm not making this up, David. From the outside, the room goes, oh, that's it. Enough, enough question. Yeah. So you're right. I mean. And you know what's going through his head right now. And that when, when he's, the question's being asked of him. Is like, like on one shoulder is like, do I want to be governor of Illinois? On the other shoulder is like, do I want a future in Republican national politics? Um, and you know, I'm pro-choice makes it much more likely he could probably win the governorship here. I don't know about the primary. Um, and then you know, adopting the party line of uh, overturning Roe and outlawing abortion for everything um, that gives him a future maybe for the U.S. House or something. Um, but it's that's a difficult line to walk here in Illinois, and um, it's just uh, people who are MAGA maniacs can. I don't think that they can. I don't think they can win even in an off year for Democrats here. Um, Rauner was able to win because he he appeared to be a normal person. Um, now I think a normal you know uh, out of touch billionaire, but you know he put you know put the you know these 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 rich people that wear the vests because they think that's going to make them a man of the people. I would love to, I'd love to see a deep dive on the vest industry. Um, but, uh, you know, Bruce Banner go out in his, in his vest and, um, probably I'm soon, I'm sure as soon as the cameras are off, he gets back into his mansion and he's like, get this vest off of me. <laughs> Where's my Armani. But, uh, you know, I, he, I rounder could easily have had a very different life as the governor of Illinois. Um, if he had essentially agreed to be, like Charlie Baker, or Larry Hogan, these are Republican governors in deep blue states um, who have been quite successful by um, by not being hardliners, you know, by by compromising with the state legislatures, which are Democratic. And I don't know who Rauner's advisor was, but he got in office and just went to war with the Democratic legislature, you know. And and Madigan, everybody they were like, okay, yeah, we're we can wait you out, buddy. You know, we know you're gonna lose. So well, no, Bruce, Bruce, just I mean, Bruce Rauner was a hardcore ideologue of a different variety than a MAGA ideologue. 
he was an anti-tax, anti-union ideologue. And so he waged war against the unions. So you're absolutely correct. If Bruce Rauner wanted a career like one of these other Republican governors that you're alluding to, uh, he would have had to be a totally different animal than he was. And he was a pro-choice. This is so bizarre. He was pro-choice and vehemently anti-union. And I, that was a recipe for... He won, uh, oh my God, he won because Pat Quinn uh, was a weak candidate and uh, he outspent him and there was divisions on the Democratic side. Rahm Emanuel, the mayor of Chicago, was playing footsie with Rauner the whole time, his old pal. And uh, so he won and then all of a sudden voters in Illinois woke up and they go, oh my God, this guy's insane, only on union So yeah, you're, you're, you're right. Um, Rauner, if he was a different human being than the one he is, he might have a great career in politics. Uh, unfortunately for him, he is who he is. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be watching this one. Richard Irvin really ducking and dodging on that one. Uh, so, But going back to Texas, a similar uh, question I have for you. Have the Republicans staked out a position statewide in Texas on issues like abortion that are just too far right and extreme? anymore state i'm not talking about running in gerrymandered districts where they're set up to uh guarantee that maga people with extreme positions are uh re-elected i'm talking about statewide unless they cheat which of course <laughs> you know there's always that but if it's a l relatively legitimate election do you think they've staked out a position that's too extreme for texas i would like to think that 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 that's true but um i'm i'm not convinced that texas is is ready to flip statewide. Um, I, I haven't heard the interview with the, the person you brought on from Houston, um, but you know, Democrats got within five points in, in 2020 of winning, you know, Biden winning Texas. Um, they haven't done as well in gubernatorial elections as they have recently in presidential elections. I, I mean, to be clear, we've lost everything, right? <laughs> we, lost, we lost all the races we're talking about. Like we haven't run a, we haven't won a statewide race in Texas since the early 1990s. Um, but the presidential votes have been getting, you know, with fits and starts, getting closer and closer um, as more people, more liberals have moved into Texas. Um, the percentage of the uh, population that's educated has gone up. Um, there's been a lot, of course, a lot of immigration there. But Democrats had some losses with, uh, especially with Texas Latinos in, in 2020, that um, I, I would like to see proof that those losses have been reversed before I'm willing to believe that somebody like Beto can win the state can win the statewide race. The other problem with with Beto is that he ran for president. <laughs> and he was and he's been uh, on camera, you know, the, I think the thing where he was like, "Hell yes, we're going to take your guns" is is really going to hurt him in a Texas governor race. And so in a lot of ways I kind of wish in retrospect, of course, that he had never one, I've never run for president because I think he'd be a stronger statewide candidate in Texas if he hadn't been up there on the stage, like forced to raise his hand about, um, you know, universal health care. You know, remember the early Democratic debates, which is there were so many people out there, they were just like, show of hands. Um, do you, yeah. <laughs> you want a wall? Show of hands. Yes. I, said, uh, I got 15 yeses and five, you know, it was ridiculous. Um, so that's, that's the dynamic over there, I think, but, but the Texas Republican party is all in on this stuff. I mean, there's, there's not a lot of dissent about banning abortion. I, I mean, they run the state, you know, and it's, there's not a lot of pushback within the party on this, some of this stuff. Now that could change after the Supreme court does its work this summer 
and it becomes more broadly clear what has happened here. Um, I think there's a lot of people in the United States who don't realize that Roe has already been effectively overturned. There may even be some people in Texas who, who are not paying close enough attention to it because I think it's just a Texas issue or something. Um, and my guess is some people are going to see some poll numbers in, in August and September of this year that they're not going to like because Roe v. Wade, as much as it has been the, the site of never-ending conflict since it was uh, put into place in 1973, has relatively broad public support, um, you know, supermajority support in terms of like, let's not mess with it. Um, and that supermajority support contains a lot of actually different opinions about what abortion should look like in the United States. Um, there is no real majority consensus about the exact, you know, this many weeks under this, these circumstances. Um, but Roe, because most people's understanding of it is kind of vague, it's like, okay, yeah, legal under certain circumstances, right? And that's, um, that's how I think most people think of it. Um, and they don't want to set up this ugly national battle over it. I think the Texas Republicans could actually get themselves into some trouble here um, once the Supreme Court finishes whatever it's going to do to Roe v. Wade. Um, you know, all eyes are going to be on state governments and what state governments will do in response to this new constitutional legal environment. Of course, Texas has already spoken about what they intend to do. Um, but I think that there's enough people that think the Supreme Court's going to stop it eventually. Um, and then when the Supreme Court I will, will obviously vote to, to overturn Roe in some way, shape, or form, once that happens, there's a whole new landscape out there. And Republicans may very well find that they have gone too far, even in Texas. Um, but I will say I'm not, I'm not convinced that Beto is the best person to carry that flag to, uh, to Austin. His comment about the guns is really going to come back to haunt him. By the way, I just had a flashback when you alluded to the night, the 2019 Democratic debates. 2019, in so many ways, it's weird, really weird, even though it's only three years ago. It like seems like a distant, glorious, golden era. I was in my stu my beloved studio. It was before the pandemic. You know what I mean? Life was more or less normal. And uh, I was thoroughly enjoying the Democratic debates. And you're right. Uh <laughs> There were all those candidates. They had to do it in, in shifts. There were so many candidates. They had like 10 that one night, 10 the next night. And I remember Kamala Harris got in trouble with the hand. I think it was having to do, my, it's a vague memory, but uh, whether she would, um, oh God, what a weird country, whether she was going to endorse health care for uh, illegal immigrants. Remember, I think that was the issue. And then she raised her hand, yes. And then she's had a backtrack. I think she, I didn't hear the question right. And I was like, oh my God, you flunked the hand, raising the hand in the air part of the. Uh. All right. Uh, you mentioned the Supreme Court. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this. We talk a lot about the Supreme Court in the show. And I'm looking at the clock. I guess we'll close down with a little discussion of the Supreme Court as well and hold off foreign policy for another show. Uh, but. There's a very interesting article in the uh, New York Times uh, that ran today. I already alluded to it. And uh, it has to do with the fact that Congressman James Clyburn of uh, South Carolina, who is a very key advisor and ally uh, to Joe Biden, I would argue that without Clyburn's endorsement, Biden may not have won uh, the uh, uh, the nomination. Or it definitely wouldn't have been as easy as it was. Anyway, uh, Clyburn wants... Um, a uh, justice from South Carolina named Michelle Childs uh, to be the nominee uh, to fill the vacancy created by Stephen Breyer. Uh, and uh, 
There are Democrats who say she's too moderate. They're a little leery of her uh, because she worked uh, against um, unions on various uh, union organizing efforts. <laughs> I'm just shaking my head. But the, my, my beloved Democrats are unreal. Uh, and so anyway, but Clyburn's insisting that uh, she be the nominee. And uh, Lord knows how it's going to play out politically. Um, and he's playing all kinds of cards. It's an interesting article about how um, uh, Brown Jackson, who is another top contender, is from Harvard. Childs is from a, uh, a local college, a uh, state school. And so we, it's time we stop being such elitist snobs and having Ivy Leaguers uh, at the Supremes. I think everybody on the bench is uh, the Supremes is an Ivy Leaguer. So, David, my question to you is, does it matter, you know, in terms of the fate of our civilization? We're going to be down 6-3 no matter what. Uh, but does it matter if uh, the Supreme Court justice uh, is from Harvard, from a state school, from, you know, more moderate, or at least has worked in corporate law on embarrassing issues? You know, how much does this matter anyway if it's, or is it just chess pieces? This is a Democrat chess piece going forward. Your thoughts? Well, it does matter. Um, and it matters because Supreme Court nominations, the history of these nominations and, and confirmations are replete with presidents uh, appointing people to the Supreme Court and then watching them in horror vote against what they thought they were going to do. Um, so, the, you know, the, the biggest one recently was David Souter, who was appointed by um, George H.W. Bush, who not only hated being a Supreme Court justice, um, <laughs> almost immediately started voting with the liberals on almost everything, um, and became it became so clear that he was he was referred to as part of the liberal bloc, um, and he didn't stay on the bench that long. But but these things do matter, um, and we we have to learn from Republicans here, right? That um, that that being sure about the ideology of the people that you put on the Supreme Court is one of the keys to, to ensuring that if you if you do eventually take control of the court, that you'll have the votes that you need to do the things that you want when the time comes. Now, if we're not going to expand the Supreme Court, then we're, we're many, many years away and a, and a lot of like balls bouncing right away from having a Supreme Court majority for the liberals. Um, and so there's a certain sense in which part of me is like, just wake me up when, we, when we're going to pack the court because I don't actually really care about this this, this much. <laughs> you know, it's like, who wants to get outvoted for the next 30 years, you know? Um, my, um, my thing would be uh, uh, just, to, just to raise the, the level of aggression and, um, and point out the, the absolute uh, just moral bankruptcy of this whole process would be to nominate like a 28-year-old public defender to the Supreme Court, um, or someone from from outside of politics, outside of the law altogether, because um, as, as I always like to point out, the, the Constitution says absolutely nothing, not one thing, about the qualifications of, of a Supreme Court judge. Um, you don't. There's no age requirement. There's no. You don't have to have a law degree. <laughs> Can you believe it? You don't have to have a law degree because um, you know not we're in a lot of law schools in 1787. So <laughs> but. Uh, why would you need one? Yeah, I mean, it's like I mean, you hire a, you hire a clerk to to to, to, to do the research. Exactly. I mean, exactly. <laughs> what did we go on? You, you know, know? And our our greatest justice for the liberals was the governor of California. Now he was a trained lawyer, but he was not a he was not a judge. Um, that's Earl Warren, and um, so I would actually like to see 
not just somebody not from Harvard, Princeton, or Yale. Um, and I do think that's important um, as a general principle. Like, if you really believe in meritocracy in this country, I mean, I don't, right? But <laughs> but a lot of people do. If you want to pretend that you do, um, then you you have to you have to elevate people into positions of power that didn't go to the, the, one of these five schools. Um, and uh, you know, but before people start throwing charges of hypocrisy, I, mean, I did I did go to the University of Pennsylvania for for grad school. Um, but I'm, but I'm not one of these, you know, I think there's a lot of smart people in the country, Ben, and they didn't all go to one of these schools, you know? So I, I would love to see one. The only thing I like about Clarence Thomas is that he hires clerks from outside of that, that Ivy league, um, setup. Like he's, he's willing to hire clerks from like the university of Cincinnati. He's otherwise a complete monster. But, um, um, I do think, uh, the way that our society looks down on and treats people from with degrees from state schools and and all kinds of professions is is absurd. I also think there's an extent to which you have a, you have the nine person supreme court made up of uh, eight eight appellate court justices from Harvard plus Elena Kagan who was the solicitor general. These are just that's just too many people who don't understand the political impact of their decisions. Um you know uh Bill Clinton wanted Mario Cuomo for uh, for Breyer's seat. That was his first choice, um, and Cuomo said no, and, and then he ended up going with a judge. But um, I, I would really like to see us return to the to the tradition of elevating political figures to the Supreme Court um, to make it clear a that it is a political body. Let's stop denying that it is that that's not the case. Um, but also people with some real world political experience. You know, uh, Brett Kavanaugh has been doing the same thing for twenty years, just law, 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 right. And, and this court is, is ruling in ways that make it very clear that these people have not stepped out of their robes in, in so very long, um, that they simply have no concept of, of the vast chaos and havoc that their decisions can wreak on American society. And so, you know, I, I'm not, a, you know, I, I hope it's not uh, this, this person from South Carolina, um, not just because she's a, uh, not great on some of the issues that we care about, but she's, she's older, she's in her mid-50s. Um, it's like, hello, have we learned nothing? Um, this is a lifetime. <laughs> I know. <laughs> lifetime no, appointment. we never learn. Never learn. Um, people are like, Michelle never Obama. Learn. Like, Michelle Obama's too old. Kamala Harris is too old. They've got to be in their 40s. Get get someone in their 40s or their 30s. You know, up the game. Um, and I'm not kidding. Like, pick, a, pick some outrageous, you know, very young um, person involved in, in our side of the legal system. Right, like um, someone who does um, public interest law, um, someone who's a public defender, someone who's a, a, who's a movement liberal, right? Not just like a you know like a oh, somebody from Harvard who made their way up the liberal hierarchy, um, and and thinks that cops are great. Um, <laughs> put a radical on the bench, really, um, and I don't care who it is. Uh, I know that Biden has has promised this. This will be a a black woman, and that's that's fine. And Republicans are crying foul about that. They're like, "How dare you say that this will be a very specific person?" <laughs> what a joke! And I'm like, "You, you <laughs> nutcases have a list of fifty people from the Federalist Society, and that's the only list that you're allowed to choose from. How is that any different than saying we're going to pick a, a particular kind of person?" But I, what I don't want is for the, the 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 racial and gender identity of this nominee to be more important than the ideology. Right? The ideology is just as important here as any other feature. And of course, this person will make history and it, it'll be great. 
um, to, to elevate a black woman to the Supreme Court. I'm not challenging that at all. I just think that there's, you know, there's enough, <laughs> there's enough choices here that you can find a young um, black woman who, who is, uh, has views consistent with the emerging consensus in the Democratic Party um, and, and who can be there for 40 years. And uh, to that extent, you know, these things can turn around quickly. I mean, we could win in 2024. You know, Thomas could die and, you know, uh, then it's 5-4 and then you're just one flip away. So it's not like, I'm not resigned to, to have lo I've lost the court for the next 30 years. Pe people talk like that. I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, but I do think it's important that this pick not be somebody that's going to be old and sick in, in 10 or 15 years. Like this person needs to stick around for a long time. Well, I uh, it was funny when you were going on that uh, riff. It was a good one too. I was enjoying it. I was thinking of these uh, baristas I had on the show from uh, Starbucks who are organizing a union or trying to. They're in their early twenties. Put one of them on. They make more sense than pretty much any <laughs> Federalist Society. Uh, wouldn't that be something? You still have to get it through the Senate. <laughs> you know, you hire them. That's you hire a clerk. He explains the law to you, and then you make common sense decisions and. Uh, uh, no, it's uh, it, the other thing that has me shaking my head when you read the article. Uh, Lindsey Graham and Tim Scott, the senators from South Carolina, are, have already said, yeah, they will support um, the uh, Michelle Childs. And I'm just shaking my head and laughing. I'm like, once again, once again, Democrats looking to Lindsey Graham, Tim Scott, various Republicans for affirmation. They can't go forward unless they have some Republicans affirming so they could feed this notion that there's this bipartisan spirit in America. We are uh, a very weird. It's horrible. I want this person to be so radical that the only question is whether Manchin and Cinema will support them. Like, I don't want any, I don't want a single Republican vote for this person. Not one. Uh, yeah. Well, that, uh, that would be an issue, yes. and that would be very embarrassing, <laughs> I think, uh, for Biden if he could not get the 50 quote-unquote Democrats to support it. Manchin, oh, too uh, radical for me. Uh, so uh, I, I think it will be uh, absolutely confirmation of something that you and I say on every show, which is that we really don't, Democrats, don't have a majority in the Senate. Uh, and the reality is we just got to wake up and, and, and admit that. And David Ferris said this, the famous David Ferris interview from, I think, October 2020, where he confessed that he had nightmares, <laughs> nightmares of uh, Joe Manchin <laughs> being the deciding vote. Uh, it's been worse than I thought. Anyway, <laughs> all right. Uh, David wrote another essay, which we just run out of time. We don't have time to discuss, but we've already we covered it uh, to some degree. It's about the Ukra uh, Ukraine and I urge everybody to check it out. Uh, he really breaks apart uh, fascinating political. Lord, war, uh, Lord knows what the world looked like in two weeks, um, you know, uh, in Eastern Europe. Now, all of a sudden, ISIS already attacked in Syria. I don't know if there's a rhyme or reason to what Joe Biden is doing these days on foreign policy fronts, uh, if he thinks this is a wag the tail. Uh, I'm not quite sure what to make of this, but we've run out of time, so I'm not even going to pretend to discuss it in this show, and I, I think we'll hold it off till next time. So uh, anyway, David, thanks again. I appreciate it, as always, you coming on every other week and talking politics with us. It's always a pleasure, Ben, and uh, we can get into Ukraine uh, next time. And uh, thanks so much. It was a blast, and uh, I'll see you soon. That's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Take care, everybody.